0: Well, good morning and welcome to the continuation of our series in Romans chapter 9 to 11. And last week we began this series by looking at the fundamental principles or pillars, if you like, which underpin uh, what has been a rather controversial debate among Christians. How do we reconcile God's sovereign right to run the universe uh, the way he sees fit, with our ability as creatures who are made in the image of God to make a genuine moral and spiritual choice. If you were with us last week and you've returned for more this morning, then can I congratulate you on your endurance and on your commitment to understand something of these very difficult chapters in Romans. I have to warn you that today will be no easier than last week. This morning we will be getting into some of the details of Romans chapter 9. It records some of God's sovereign choices in history. The chapter does not discuss the philosophical nuances of what God could have chosen. Uh, Instead, it refers to a number of choices which God actually has made uh, in history. So we're going to look at what God has done rather than what he could have done. And these have been documented for us in the Old Testament. There are several verses in chapter 9 of Romans, which we're looking at this morning, which, if you take them out of context, appear to say that God can just do whatever he wants without having to justify his choices and we are not allowed to question that. Now, let's read the central section from this chapter, from verses 10 to 21, and then we will consider what Paul is actually saying in these verses. So let's cut in uh, Romans chapter nine, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated. What shall, then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all for he says to Moses, "'I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, "'and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion.'" It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, "'I raised you up for this very purpose, "'that I might display my power in you, "'and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth.'" Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, And he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? and we'll end our reading there. In this chapter, Paul refers to several times in history where God chose certain people or certain nations as part of his strategy. And Paul argues that God has the right to make such choices. Sometimes these verses are used to justify the claim that God has chosen people for salvation and chosen others like Pharaoh Hell. Verse 18, in isolation, does seem to be rather stark. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Some people read this chapter as saying, God can do whatever he wants. We have no say in it, and we are told we cannot even ask God for the reasons for his choice. The pot does not have the right to ask the potter, why did you make me like this some try to justify this view as follows if god could identi- if if we could identify a logical reason why god has chosen a particular person the argument goes then god's choice must have been influenced by something in or about that person in other words god's choice would have been influenced by their works now we know that salvation and election is not by works Therefore, we are told, we should not look for any logical reason for God's election. Is that really the argument that Paul is making in this chapter? I hope to show you that Paul argues exactly the opposite. In particular, I hope we will see that God's sovereign choices in Romans chapter 9 are reasonable and rational and perfectly just. There are three points in these verses which we've read, which I want to look at. And in each case, we will ask, does scripture give a reason for God's choice? Or must we just accept that God can do whatever he wants and we have no right to question him? The first of these is God's choice of, firstly, Isaac rather than his brother Esau. And secondly, God's choice of Jacob rather than his older brother Esau sorry, uh, Isaac, rather than Ishmael. Then secondly, we want to look at the letter, the lesson from The Potter and the Clay, which is based on a famous passage in Jeremiah, where God told Jeremiah to visit a potter at work. And finally, we'll look at the difficult question. If God has mercy on whom he wants, and if he hardens whoever he wants to harden, then who does God want to have mercy on? And who does he want to harden? Are God's reasons hidden from us? Or is there a rational reason in Scripture for his sovereign actions? And are his sovereign choices fair? In this context, we'll look briefly at Pharaoh who is mentioned in verse 17. Okay, so first of all then, is there a reason why God chose Isaac and Jacob rather than their older brothers, Ishmael and Esau. It's important, first of all, to see that uh, Paul uses these characters to speak of nations and peoples rather than providing lessons about individuals. Take, for example, Jacob and Esau and God's statement, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This quote is from Malachi, And if you look at the context, it is clear that God is referring to the nations that came from Jacob and Esau, not to the individuals. Israel was originally the name God gave to Jacob, uh, but it soon came to refer to Jacob's descendants, the children of Israel. Likewise, Esau was the ancestor of the Edomites. They lived alongside Israel and in the region of that famous city of Petra, which I know some of you have visited. Now, do you remember that Malachi was written after Israel had returned from exile. His book starts with Israel asking, how has God loved us? God's answer <coughs> points to some <coughs> historical facts. The Babylonians had come and had destroyed both the nations of Israel and Edom. Israel was taken into exile in Babylon and later in Persia, while the Edomites were displaced and dispersed. But God points out that Israel did not disappear from their land permanently. God had miraculously preserved them and brought them back to their original homeland. But the same did not happen to the Edomites. God did not restore them to their original land. So, as evidence of how God had loved Israel, God refers to the history of nations. His election of Israel was to pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. It did not in any way force Israel to believe. In fact, as we saw last week, Israel rejected Christ. So, the first lesson, then, is that God's election in these verses is primarily of nations. And the second lesson comes from observing a pattern in the people God chooses. You may have noticed something, that in the case of both Isaac and Jacob, God deliberately chose the younger son, uh, the younger brother. In families in Old Testament times, the first son was always the privileged one. The future of the family line rested on the shoulders of the first son. They had a clear role and purpose in life. But when the second son came along, they didn't have a special purpose, and they were often overlooked. And who did God choose? God consistently did not choose the oldest son. He chose the underdog in the family, the one who was overlooked. Isaac and Jacob were both the second sons. And think of the choosing of the boy, David, uh, whom Samuel came to anoint. David was the eighth son of Jesse. Jesse considered only his first seven sons as his real family. Jesse barely even acknowledged David as his son. This principle applied in the same way to God's choice of the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy, the Lord explains why he chose Israel. God says he did not choose Israel because they were the biggest, most impressive nation quite the opposite. They were the smallest, most unimpressive people, despised by the other real nations. Some of you men who used to play football at school may remember uh, the choosing, the process of choosing the two teams. Two captains, first of all, were chosen, and then the rest of us were lined up against the wall. The captains took turns to choose the next player, starting with the best players. I'll take you," the captain said, and the chosen person would have walked proudly over to join him. But some of us remember being in the final group of two or three that nobody wanted. And one captain would say to the other, you take the rest. We felt like the dusty dregs that are left over at the bottom of a packet of cornflakes when it's almost finished. It's just thrown out by most people. Now, God has a clear pattern in whom he chooses. When it is his turn, he chooses the dregs that nobody wants. This pattern is spelled out by Paul in 1 Corinthians. God has chosen the weak and foolish things of this world, the despised things that are nothing. The brilliant thing is this. God works with this most unpromising material, and still manages to achieve his wonderful purposes through his wisdom and love. So that pattern is a deliberate and intelligent strategy on God's part. The reason is, is that there's a great danger in being chosen by God. We can become proud. We can forget that God chooses the dregs. If we're not careful, we can regard ourselves as being part of a special elite That happened to Israel. They thought they were better than other nations because they were God's elect. I have met uh, some people from time to time who have told me that they are part of the elect. And when I occasionally remind them that God has chosen the weak and foolish things in this world, it doesn't go down too well. It doesn't fit with the picture that some of them have of themselves. The problem for God is that he cannot work with proud people. Proverbs says, God opposes the proud. God cannot achieve his plan A with proud people, even though they are chosen. So he resorts to a plan B, which achieves his same purposes, but in another way. So there is a very rational and consistent basis for God's sovereign choices in history. Although God can choose whoever he wants, his choices are not random. The reasons for his choices are very wise and very fair and open to scrutiny. And I think we'll see this principle in operation when we look at the lesson from the potter and the clay. In verses 20 and 21, Paul says something which, if you take it in isolation, Uh, again sounds as though we have no right to question God's sovereign choices and decisions. He says this, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? To understand what Paul is saying, we need to go back to the historical event which inspired Paul's reference to the potter. In Jeremiah 18, the Lord sent Jeremiah to the house of the potter just outside Jerusalem to receive a message from the Lord about Israel. There, Jeremiah saw a potter at work with a lump of clay. As the potter started to shape the clay into perhaps a beautiful jar, the clay seemed to resist the potter's intentions, and the jar was spoiled. So the potter made a different pot from the same clay. A simpler, less glorious pot, but a useful one nonetheless. And immediately after seeing this, the Lord explained to Jeremiah the lesson of what he had just witnessed. The Lord said he had the right to do with Israel what the potter had done with the clay. The Lord had been trying to mold Israel just like a potter, trying to get them to repent, to change But Israel had resisted like the clay Jeremiah had seen. And this is what the Lord says to Jeremiah about Israel. He says, turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. It was the stubbornness of Israel's heart, like the difficult clay, which caused the Lord to use Israel for his plan B instead of his glorious plan A. The potter had maybe planned to mold a beautiful vase to display a bunch of flowers in a prominent place in a house, a vase which everyone could admire. But because of the stubbornness of the clay, the potter reused the same lump of clay to make perhaps a flower pot. Both objects served a similar purpose of holding flowers, but plan A was to create a glorious vessel of honor, whereas plan B was to use the same lump of clay for a common vessel. It served a similar purpose, but it had no honor attached to it. If flower pots could speak You might have heard the flower pot complaining to the potter. Why did you make me like this? Why not like that beautiful pot? Why am I not special? Why just a common flower pot? If we had heard that complaint, it would have been quite reasonable for us to reply to it. You have no right to blame the potter. You stubbornly resisted the potter's efforts to form you. You have no right to complain to your maker for ending up as a flower pot. So when Paul says in verse 20, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me thus? Paul is, saying, is not saying that we have no right to question God's sovereign choices. Far from it. We have the choice either to be soft and malleable and pliable in God's hands and to turn to God, or we can be stubborn, refusing to repent and determined to live according to our own plans. We have that choice, but then we have no right to challenge the consequences. Incidentally, Paul later applies the same argument to Christians when he writes to Timothy. He says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore." If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If we want to be a vessel used by the Lord for honorable purposes, then we need to cleanse our lives from anything that is dishonorable. We need to place our lives into the hands of God, allow him to mold us, He can only work with material that we give him. And finally, we come to the last point in our verses. Who does God want to harden, and who does he want to have mercy on? Paul says in verse 18, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, in isolation, this sounds as though God can arbitrarily decide to have mercy on the elect and to harden the non-elect so that they can't repent and believe. But let's ask what Paul says about who God hardens and who God wants to have mercy on. Is his choice arbitrary, or is it reasonable and fair? Let's first ask, who is it that God hardens? Paul gives us one very concrete example, the example of Pharaoh during the plagues, in the book of Exodus. During the plagues in Exodus, it is true that at one point, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That was after the sixth plague, which was the start of the second half of the ten plagues. But all through the first group of five plagues, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. For example, during the plague of frogs, Pharaoh pleaded with Moses to take the frogs away, and he promised he would be a changed man. But when when all the frogs died and the panic was over, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to change. During the plague of flies, the same thing happened. He promised that if the plague was removed, he would let Israel go. But when the crisis was over, he again hardened his own heart and went back on his promise. After the first five plagues, Pharaoh's heart was well and truly hardened. But he had hardened it himself. It was his own choice. At this point, then, God stepped in to keep Pharaoh's heart hard. God had an important reason for doing this. God was not acting out of anger or out of hurt pride. He was thinking of the nations in the land of Canaan. And the message that they would hear about Egypt Those were the people who would meet the children of Israel when they entered the land. In the book of Joshua, I think we're told of only two lots of Canaanites who came to accept the Lord. They were Rahab, and then there were the Gibeonites who asked to make a treaty with Israel. In both cases, they were prompted by what they had heard about God's dealings with Egypt because of Pharaoh's extreme rebellion. When the Gibeonites asked for peace, they said, for we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt. Rahab also said that everyone had heard what the Lord had done in Egypt. And it was particularly what the Lord did in Egypt as a result of the last five plagues. The news about how the Lord destroyed the economic and military power of Egypt was actually welcome news to many of the surrounding nations who were dominated by Egypt. During the first five plagues, the Lord had held back from destroying Egypt. He had always left the door open for Pharaoh to repent. But once Pharaoh, by his own choice, hardened his heart to the point of no return, then the Lord was justified in using Pharaoh's arrogance and pig-headedness against himself. If the Lord had revealed his true power after plague five, Pharaoh might have caved in, albeit through gritted teeth. But the Lord wanted Pharaoh to continue to the point of destroying himself and his economic and military power. And so the Lord hardened or strengthened Pharaoh's heart so that he continued in his rebellion to the bitter end and so that the nations in Canaan would see what had happened. As a result, Pharaoh's deep-seated hatred of God was fully exposed for all the nations to see. His power over other nations and over Israel was broken. And as a result, some of the people who heard about it came to seek peace with God. How different that is from the idea that God arbitrarily hardens ordinary people so that they can't seek peace with God, even if they wanted to. The Lord who cared so much about Rahab and the Gibeonites would have been appalled at the suggestion that he actively prevents people from seeking and finding him by hardening their hearts. And finally, that phrase, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Again, taken out of context, someone might be tempted to think that God's mercy is selectively dispensed and he only wants to show mercy to a limited number of people called the elect. Let's allow Paul in Romans 9 to 11 to answer the question, who does God want to have mercy on? The final answer to that question comes at the end of this section in chapter 11. And by that stage, Paul is able to give us the answer. He says, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he might have mercy on all of them. On all of them, he says. So God has stated in black and white who he wants to have mercy on, to everyone. He wants to have mercy on them all. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Of course, we know that some people stubbornly refuse to accept God's offer of salvation they knowingly refuse the grace of a loving God who sent his son to die for them. But as people created in the image of God, God respects the right to choose that. God will move heaven and earth to give people the opportunity to believe, but he will accept their final answer. I say final answer because, of course, people's first answer is rarely their final answer. God is immensely patient with people who have so far refused him. He is prepared to work with rebellious people for a lifetime, hoping that they will finally repent and accept Christ. Even in their dying moments, God is there, willing and ready to accept the slightest sign of repentance and faith. Such is his desire to show mercy. I'm glad we have come. To know a God like that, who does not rule and control by sheer absolute power, but who honors our status as human beings, and has done everything in his power to convince us of his love and his best intentions for us. May God give us good understanding of these difficult and challenging aspects of God's strategy in human history. Let's just pray for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom and glory in human history and in running this universe. We thank you that you are a loving and a just God, that you want the best for everyone on this planet. But we appreciate the significance of who we are as creatures made in the image of God. We just pray, Father, that all of us would allow ourselves to be molded by you, for you want the best for us. You want to make us into something glorious, and it's only our resistance to your actions which make things turn worse for us. So we pray that we would put ourselves into your hands, that we might be molded into something glorious. In Jesus' name, amen.